0: Hello there. Did you have a good Christmas? Stroke seasonal break? I do hope so. I hope you got the chance to put your feet up. Happy New Year as well. 2023 was a pretty good one. What will 2024 bring though? My name is Dr Neil Buttery and this is the British Food History Podcast. Welcome to both listeners old and new. Guess what? It's only the 50th episode of the podcast. That seems to have flown by quite quickly, doesn't it? Let me just say, thank you very much for your continuing support, everybody. And here's to 50 more, eh? Now, I've saved this episode, especially for today. 5th of January, 2024, because it's 12th night. The last day of Christmas. The traditional day of the wassail. The blessing of the apple orchards. And other fruits too, actually. And today I'm talking to Joanna Crosby, all about apples and orchards, and we do cover wassailing as part of our discussion. Now before we begin, a reminder that there's going to be a postbag edition at the end of the season, so if you've got any comments, questions or queries regarding anything you've heard from this episode, or any episode so far, please get in contact. Email neil at britishfoodhistory.com or... Leave a comment beneath a post or send me a DM on social media. I'm on Twitter, at Neil Buttery. I'm on Instagram and threads as Dr, that's D-R, underscore Neil, underscore Buttery. I'm on Blue Sky as well, so you can find me there. My handle is at Neil neilbuttery.bsky.social or post in the British Food History Facebook discussion page, which is at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash British Food History. And if you haven't already, please leave a rating. Five-star rating, please. Or follow it wherever you usually get your podcasts. And write a review if possible. Every single one helps. And it helps the podcast get discovered by more people. If you want, and if you can, support the upkeep of the podcast financially by donating a virtual coffee or pint, Please visit the website, BritishFoodHistory.com, and go to the Support the Blog and Podcast tab. On that same page, you can become a £3 monthly subscriber, where you get access to my premium blog content, a monthly newsletter, and my Easter eggs. I shall tell you about those at the end of the episode, along with other news, but let's talk about today. Today, I am talking to Joanna Crosby, who's written a fantastic book called Apples and Orchards since the 18th century. It's out now and published by Bloomsbury and she pretty much covers every single aspect of the apple's history. It's an academic publication, but it doesn't read like it. It's very approachable, I do recommend it. Things covered today include the origins of the apple, growing and grafting trees, some of the excellent names given to some of the varieties, plus two classic British varieties, the Bramley seedling and the Cox's orange pippin, and we talk about wassailing, as I said, and the London apple women of the 19th century and much more. So I'll be back at the end to tell you about Easter eggs and news, but now Apples and Orchards with Joanna Crosby. Hello and welcome to the podcast, Joanna. Very pleased to uh, have a chance to speak to you again.
1: Hello, nice to talk to you.
0: We met briefly, didn't we? We had a bit of a chat at the Leeds Food and Drink Symposium. And you were telling me all, all about your book and now it's out and ready and published for people to read. It's very exciting. It is, yes. Yeah, it's finally got there. Your book is Apples and Orchards Since the 18th Century. Before we start talking about the contents of the book, really, I just thought we could maybe talk about, well, your relationship with apples and orchards, because when mm. people are food historians, there's, there's two ways of getting in there, I think. One, because it's a hobby. Yeah. And the other thing is that it's, they've uh, discovered it during time at university and got into it from a more academic point of view. So I wanted to ask you, what what was your kind of way into this subject?
1: I think it's a bit of both, really. I'd always been interested in sort of heritage and history. Mm. I've done an MSc at the Ironbridge Institute Um, which was training people to work in museums. What I was interested in was what was called the below stairs history. So very much your area, the kitchens and the the housework that went on there. And after that, I came to Cambridge for work. And I had an allotment um, in a small village that's attached to Cambridge called Trumpington. Good name. And Oh, yes. And I did... (laughs) what you should never do, which is put your hand up at the Allotment Annual General Meeting and volunteer for something.
2: Mm. Um,
1: A group of people turned up at the meeting and they said, we've got this bit of land at the bottom of the allotments. It's full of brambles. It's not being used for anything. We'd like to turn it into a community orchard. And um, everyone else was suddenly really busy reading the treasurer's report or picking the mud out of their wellingtons. And I was the only one that um, put my hand up and said, yeah, that sounds great. I'll get involved. So we did that. We got a piece of land. And because I'd done this sort of food history work anyway, as part of my MSC and my studies, I started to research what was meant by heritage apples. Mm. Because we had this idea. We said to everyone, we're going to grow heritage apples. And everyone said, oh, that sounds good. What are they? And we were like, Um, so (laughs) i went away and i did a lot of research and to uh, get awareness for the project i started to give talks and people started to ask me questions Mm -hmm. and i had to say i don't know i'll find out i'll come back and eventually after some years somebody said oh you could do a phd with all that you know and i thought you know i probably could so i did so (laughs) it's a, a good combination of the practical out there in the orchard with the boots on Mm -hmm. and the academic studies and transferring one to the other was quite a challenge.
0: That's good though because you know you I mean this isn't the case for every academic of course but you do kind of think oh they're in their ivory tower they've got no idea what it's actually (laughs) like at the coalface all that kind of stuff so you've actually had some practical knowledge and of course that hobbyist's enthusiasm really helps doesn't it?
1: It does it keeps you going yeah and also (laughs) the the thing about Apple's is that I can grow and then eat an apple that's the same variety that we know that Queen Victoria had growing, or even there's one called the AP or the Appy apple, mm. which was grown in Henry VIII's
0: orchards. Oh, really? So we've got some that are that far that yeah. far back. Wow!
1: So you eat one, and because of the way that apples are grown, which we'll talk about in a bit, you're basically eating something that Henry VIII ate without the need to go through the whole finding the recipe, interpreting the recipe, mm. cooking the recipe. So you've got that direct experience with apples, which is something that not many food and cultural hyster- historians can get hold of.
0: No, because people go to great pains, of course, to recreate foods. And I try and do it, of yeah. course. But you can never get 100% of the way there. But I guess in your case, you, you are there. Pretty much, if you eat the apple. I mean, there's going to be naysayers who are going to be saying, oh, well, they use different fertilisers and different soils. But we're going to ignore those people. I'm going to ask you a a simple question to get started with. What is an apple?
1: Right. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) That's the simple question. Yes. So an apple, as we know, is a fruit from an apple tree and the apple tree is a member of the rosaceae family of plants Mm -hmm. so it is related to roses and you can think about that if you have a look at the eye end of the apple which is the opposite end from the stalk Mm -hmm. turn it up the other way you will see there's sepals there which look a bit like a, a rose hit so you can see that relationship there so, they're basically a large fruit with the pips, the seeds inside, and that fruit has developed so that things will come along and eat it and therefore spread the pips further down the road once mm-hmm. digestion has taken place.
0: Good answer. What about an orchard then? Is there a. Right. It's, it seems to be, from reading your book, it's one of those quite mm, undefined words. I and mean, yeah. people may be make up their own definitions of what an orchard is, maybe?
1: I was quite surprised in my research to find out how fluid an idea an orchard is. I think if I say to you, orchard, Mm. you might be thinking of the orchards of the West Country with their huge trees laden with cider apples, maybe some sheep grazing underneath. Mm. Maybe if you're thinking of, 19th century art, you can think about a reclining maiden underneath one of these trees, you know, a very popular subject. That's one type of orchard, and that's specific to the West Country area. But if you think of 19th century and earlier 18th century orchards around London, we're almost back to the allotment again, where the trees were grown as part of a very tightly managed market garden. Mm. So that you've got rows of short pruned apple trees in among things like cabbages, gooseberries, anything else that they could grow, and apples were part of that. And then again, where I am in East Anglia, which is not renowned for being an orchard county, there were quite big orchards grown um, in monastic gardens and around places like Norwich. And again, they were quite tightly managed, but they were smaller trees. So wherever you are... There's an orchard type that was local to you, and it suits the soil, and it suits the climate, and it suits the kind of apples that you're growing, which goes back to this idea of heritage apples, that they were varieties that came along that were suitable for the orchard that you were trying to create. And one of the things that
0: you mentioned uh, in the book, actually, which, which was really interesting, was that you find it very difficult to actually estimate or ascertain how many or how much area was taken up mm. by orchards because some of them seem to be for personal use or uh, are so small that people just didn't bother counting them. So there's a lot of sort of untapped data there that we sort of can't get to.
1: There is. There's 19th century maps. Um, you're probably familiar with the the tithe maps. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's quite a few of those that go around. The inspectors who looked at what crops were growing often discounted apple trees as if the crop was worth nothing um, and put that area down as pasture. In Kent, where hops um, for beer are grown among apple trees, uh, they counted the hops and not the apple trees. (laughs) And nearly every farm had a small orchard, maybe a dozen trees, most of which obviously would be eaten by the the farmer's family and the farmhands, some of which the surplus would be taken to market. Some of which would be made into cider. Mm. So I think that the area of orchards has been underestimated, but sadly that makes the decline in the 20th century even larger. Mm. So I think we've lost even more orchards than we're aware of. It's odd that people just ignore the apples. The reason I
0: say that is it's it's really important for our identity, I think, you know, especially in our food culture. And that kind of you kind of alluded to it before, that sort of romanticism we have about orchards and and cider and and things like that and yet they seem to be treated with a certain amount of um, contempt I guess familiarity has bred contempt to some degree with them
1: I think so I Mm. think there's a you get it in quite a lot of foods now really but there's a sort of a disconnect between how they're grown and how we use them and um, even the Victorians the pre-Raphaelites were looking back at a, an age of orchards that they said had been lost. You know, these these beautiful orchards they could already see were being swallowed mm. up by the development of cities like Manchester yeah. um, and London um, as they grew. And I think the orchard of our imagination, yes, is, is something that we can see quite clearly, but probably something that never existed. But the apple, of course, finds its way into so much of our culture and so much of our art Um, and you've only got to think of Adam and Eve Mm -hmm. and you think of an apple and then it goes all the way through to figures like Snow White.
0: Sure yeah.
1: Who ate one half of a poisoned apple. So apples are everywhere and what I found nice was doing my research is that it is something that other people can get hold of and lots of other people brought me apple pictures and apple stories and apple recipes. So that was a really nice connection with sort of the wider culture.
0: Oh, that's really good. It's almost like people have just been waiting for somebody to ask them Yeah, <laughs> yeah. about this stuff.
1: You start talking to people about apples, everybody's got something to say. It's great.
0: So apples are very much a part of our identity. You could probably say that uh, about America as well. You know, we probably both yeah. revere apple pie as a, one of our national dishes. But we do. apples are not British and they're not, American, whereabouts do they originate from and how how did they get to Britain?
1: Well, amazingly, they come from what's now part of China, or sort of Kazakhstan, the Tian Shan mountain area. And there was a huge area, we're talking prehistoric times, sure. Um, called the fruit forest. Hmm. And we now know that quite a few of our fruits, apples, apricots, almonds, things like that, originated in this forest. Oh. And... There's this really lovely idea that bears were wandering through this forest and were picking and eating the fruit from the trees, and then obviously, as I've said, sort of digesting the apple and the pips emerge a bit further down yes. out of the forest. And early man, this nice sort of large catch-all title, early man, <laughs> yes, did the same thing, and as early man migrated across Europe, these fruits came with them.
0: I see.
1: When did the apple arrive in Britain? Hmm, possibly with the Romans. We like to blame the Romans for many things. It's always
0: the Romans.
1: Yeah, nettles, <laughs> rabbits. Nettles? Nettles. Oh, apparently. I've not heard that yeah. one. Oh, great. Yeah, nettles. <laughs> That's Romans. Yeah, nettles, rabbits, <laughs> possibly apples. But there's a lot of Celtic mythology that talks about apples and talks about them as large, sweet, Edible apples, whereas the the native apple, the little crab apple that Mm. you might still see growing in their hedges or as an ornamental tree, that's the one with the little tiny fruits on. Sure. If that was here first, the Celts wouldn't have talked about it as luscious and large and beautiful because it's really sour.
0: No, indeed, and it's not like there's lots of sugar or something around to make it into a nice jelly.
1: (laughs) No. So the Romans certainly brought orchard growing techniques here and probably their own varieties of apple. So the first orchards with the Romans and then spread from there, really.
0: Yes, and I guess there's not much information, at least in the early Middle Ages,
1: no, about it. No,
0: As There's a, a dearth of material.
1: Yeah, and of course, um, in America, as far as I know, there were no crab apples, and they obviously relied on the settlers from England and other European countries, brought apple trees and apple pips over with them and planted them there.
2: And,
0: well, typically in orchards anyway, apples Mm. aren't grown from seed. I mean, we'll maybe talk about why that is (laughs) in a bit, but (laughs) they're grown by grafting. Um, And was that a technology that the Romans had? Was that something that had been worked
1: out? Yes. Right. Um, Not just with apple trees, but because it works with, with other fruits as well, particularly Um, with vines, which, of course, the Romans were very interested in. Mm -hmm. So the idea of grafting, which is basically that you can take two trees, two plants, and put them together to make one plant, goes back to the ancient Egyptians. You can find Egyptian texts and images that um, relate to grafting. So it's certainly something that the Romans had a lot of knowledge of.
0: When you're grafting, you're essentially putting one branch, essentially, of, of another one plant onto... Another
1: yeah. yeah,
0: that was no very good explanation. <laughs> Help me out.
1: Okay, <laughs> roll the sleeves up. Okay, let's let's talk about apples' sex lives. Um, okay. Basically, if you eat an apple and you think that was a really nice apple, I want another one of those. And you plant the pips in a flower pot. If they germinate, you will get five little seedling trees. Mm-hmm. They will not taste like the apple that you loved and ate because apples are like children. However many times you try, you do not get the same one twice.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, it's like it's brothers and sisters, isn't it? So they may exactly. be similar, they may
1: but be they're similar. not going to be the same. They're not going to be the same. I see. Many good, A good apple variety has come from a pit. So uh, when you get a seedling apple tree, it's unique and to itself. If you want to preserve and keep going the apples from that tree, then you have to graft. So you have to take a piece of the tree with the apple that you know and love, and you graft it onto another tree. And nowadays we talk about the rootstock. Um, So you graft the variety onto the rootstock. And the rootstock provides the vigour and the height of the tree and some other characteristics. And the variety is the one that you like that will go on the top.
0: I see. And that rootstock... From reading your book, I found out, isn't necessarily an apple tree, or isn't very rarely an apple tree. Other species, yes. closely related species are Other closely are related
1: species are used because they give a more reliable result. Mm. Um, and now commercial rootstocks are so reliable that the trees will all grow to more or less the same height, you know, and, and exactly the same characteristics that you want.
0: It's amazing how much influence the rootstock stock has on the rest of the, it is. the plant.
1: yeah. Yeah. yeah, and even more amazingly, we still don't really know what happens at that join between the variety, the, the scion, the graft, mm. and the rootstock. We don't quite know mm. how they work together, even at a genetic level. But so there's still more to discover there. But historically, gardeners have always had this attitude, I think, that I don't exactly know how it works, but I know that it does. So this is what we're doing. So um, grafting has been quite a reliable process for centuries.
0: There are many, many varieties of apples. What were the first really commercial types? And when when were they grown? I kind of envision it to be the 18th century, because um, it was that time where there's the agricultural revolution was beginning at the end of the previous century. Mm -hmm. And uh, although things weren't necessarily perfect, by the end of the 18th, the tail end of it, We were pretty good at just growing stuff and farming stuff. So in my head, it's always the 18th century where we really um, come into our own when it comes to producing large amounts, you know, for the populace of cities and things like that.
1: I think you're right there. I think with apples, the sort of naming of varieties and the almost a sort of taking pleasure in the different attributes of an apple is more nineteenth century, eighteenth okay. century. I think the market for them was very usually quite local. Obviously, if you think about an apple, they bruise, they don't travel too well over mm-hmm. long distances. They had to sort of wait for transportation to catch up with them.
0: Really? Yes, I suppose even packed even packed up all nice and safely between straw in sand. If you're yep. on the back of a cart. <laughs>
1: Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's not going to
0: be enough protection. I've not no, I'd not you, thought of that before. Yeah,
1: you sort of get <laughs> apple sauce by the time you've uh, you've arrived if you're sure. not careful. But having said that, they were sent around the country a lot by boat. So again, from East Anglia, they were sent down the Wash around the, the Norfolk coast and down to London. Um, Bristol used boats to transport apples from that region, but I think mainly they probably would have been unnamed, I mean, you know, the gardener would have known and would have have had a crop, but I think a lot of those varieties might have just been sort of, you know, John Smith's apple that we get or the big red apple from the estate, Mm -hmm. something like that. And I Mm -hmm. think it it took a little while for, again, you're right, um, plant nurseries were uh, becoming a thing at the end of the 18th century. We also imported a lot of apple trees from Flanders, now the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. And again, I think when catalogues came out, then you started to get the names of things. Um, So you started to get names for varieties. And the 19th century nursery growers were very adept at this. There's a a nurseryman called Laxton, and he named all his um, apples things like Laxton Superb. Laxton's Epicure, you know, they're very mm-hmm. uh, sort of good marketing names for them.
0: There's some really good names.
1: There are. Yeah. Some
0: really good yeah. names. And it's a shame just for the names alone that the, some varieties have disappeared.
1: Yeah. <laughs> have you got any yeah. favourites? I'm particularly fond of Cat's Head, which does sort of look like a like a big cat's head. If, okay. you, if you sort of imagine ears on it, it's got that sort of snout to it. Okay. There's ones that sort are of named after people. There's one was named after a head gardener called William Crump. You can sort of imagine him from his apple, really, because it's a sort of a big yellow, slightly slumped over sort of apple. (laughs) Um, And there's one called Darcy Spice, which um, comes from Essex and to me um, always sounds like she should be on the, you know, TOWIE sort of name, Darcy <laughs> Spice, but uh, nothing to do with that at all. And that one has been around since the 18th century.
0: Right. So as long as you can just keep um, taking grafts off a, tr- off a tree, you can you just can carry on. Yeah.
1: Because yeah,
0: it's a, um, a genetic um, clone, essentially, isn't it? Exactly. Creating? It
1: is, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so you can eat, you know, an apple that goes way back in history.
0: So I guess if you're making new varieties or to make new varieties, you've either got to do a bit of experimentation and just plant some seeds and see if some of them are great. Yeah. Or I guess wait for little mutations to accrue in the clones and change that way. you can do
1: that. And they are called sports. And uh, Ah. they will often result in things like a a different coloured skin. So there's the Bramley, the big green cooking apple. Yeah. And there's a sport of it called crimson bramley, which not surprisingly has a bright red skin and is very attractive. Oh, I've
0: never heard of the crimson ah. bramley.
1: But back to apples sex lives for a moment,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, because the other thing when you've got your seedling apples planted uh, is you need to think about the pollination. And this does affect, if you've got an apple tree in your garden and it's not doing too well, um, you probably need to get it another apple tree because apple trees are not self-fertile. They don't self-pollinate. They need another apple tree um, in the vicinity. Obviously, a distance a bee can get between one and Mm -hmm. the other. Mm -hmm. And some apple trees actually need two more apple trees. So you have to get a threesome going on. Right, um, apple. Yeah, if you, want, a, yeah, if you want to get those, if you want to get those varieties going,
0: very interesting. You mentioned the Bramleys, the mm. Bramley's seedling. The yes. other one, of course, that I would say that people would say is an absolute stone cold classic variety is the Cox's Orange Pippin, which also has a fantastic name. It's very satisfying yes. to say. <laughs> it is a very sort of
1: nineteenth century name, really. Mm, I was yes.
0: going to say, are they both nineteenth century?
1: They are yes, um, sort of end of the nineteenth century. This was a period when apple lovers, um, pomologists, as we Mm -hmm. are technically called, they started to hold apple conferences and apple congresses, and they all got together, um, got in apples from all around the country, and decided which were the best. So they started to hand out awards for apples, Mm. Um, a bit like now you might see a plant with the um, RHS, the Royal Horticultural Society Award of Merit this is a very ah, similar yes. idea. I this see. is the best apple. Mm. Um, and they decided that the Bramley's seedling was the best cooking apple, and the Cox's Orange Pippin was the best eating apple. And it does have that wonderful taste to it. So it was grown by an amateur grower, a Mr. Cox, and the Bramley seedling. There was a, a young lady who planted the seed, the apple the first apple seed, Mary Southern Southwell. And she, it really should be a Southwell seedling, but um, it, the house where it was was taken over and it became um, a Bramley seedling when it was exhibited. I see. Um, so again, seedling in the title, this one was grown from a seed. Pippin, again in the title, often means that we think that this, the one originated from a pit. From a seed. Oh, right. Yeah.
0: I'd never even thought about that. It was in the name.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Never thought about um, it before. Okay. So, masses of money is now poured today into growing our next commercial apple. So, you get things like the Honeycrisp, which has taken over America, and the Pink Lady. um, Pink Lady is the one
0: now, isn't it? When I was growing up, it was the ubiquitous Golden Delicious.
1: Yeah. Delicious in name only. Unfortunately <laughs> so, yes. The Golden Delicious suffered a bit because it was always picked far too early when it wasn't golden and it was bright green and hard as a bullet and never tasted of anything much at all. Mm. And in fact, they had to market it, if you remember, on Le Crunch. so I, they, I the do only rem- way they could those it.
0: adverts, yeah.
1: yeah. The only way they could market <laughs> it was to say how crunchy it was. But if you do get a Golden Delicious might come back now our summers are hotter they need more sunshine so in france um they grow beautifully and golden and they really are lovely but over here not so much i suppose this is
0: when you get to the point where when when you're thinking about heritage varieties you know at Mm. some point different traits are preferred so what you want is a heavy cropper and a consistent cropper because you are trying to feed a lot of people um, you try to make yeah. it a more affordable affordable yeah. for people too. Yeah. But of course, often these come with trade-offs for taste and texture and other things. And a, a lot of people say this, like just because it's a heritage variety doesn't mean it's good. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes there's a progression for improvement of flavour. Yeah. But yeah. most of the time, these heritage varieties might be lumpy, they might be inconsistent, Yeah. Um, but they're usually... All the better tasting for it is that true in your experience
1: would you say i think it's true a lot of the time hmm. but i think the difference between now and say 19th and 18th century is that obviously now we want an apple we can eat straight away you know you go and grab one from the the little sort of even like the i don't know the petrol station you know there's a thing not apple yeah, so so you go and grab one and you eat it, um, and if you're good, you throw the core into the bank along the motorway and it might grow up to be a seedling tree. But back in in the day when people had more time for these things and ways of storing apples, the space to store them, apples were grown that were fairly horrible if you ate them off the tree straight away, but if you stored them for a couple of months. It allowed the sugars to come out in the fruits and then they tasted better. So if you were a good and careful housewife, you could have fresh apples or apples that had just been in store 10, 11 months of the year quite easily. But now if you went into a supermarket and they said, here's an apple, don't eat it now. Put it somewhere cool, out of the light, turn it every day, come back to it in two months time. Nobody's going to buy that. No way. No way. So um, those are the varieties that, that we're in danger of losing mm. most,
0: I think. In some parts of the country, more apples were grown for cider and I suppose some pears as well for yeah. for perry. Yeah. Very important yeah. part of our food heritage. I mean, we don't see much of it up north where I am in Manchester, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but I thought I'd ask just quickly about orchards and wassailing because that's another, yeah. a, a very important part of our heritage that's, well, would you say it's gone or it's just exists in very small pockets?
1: Well, sailing was something that I first discovered on the Trumpington Community Orchard. We were looking for an event, and um, we discovered that there is this tradition of blessing the trees, basically in the winter. So it's a winter time tradition. It takes place around Christmas Eve, Old Twelfth Night. So really, sort of in the dead of winter, mm-hmm. um, and it basically involves. Drinking large quantities of cider, um, making a lot of noise in the orchard and uh, having a lot of fun. And the idea is that it scares off any evil spirits that are in the orchard and encourages a good harvest. So um, in our little orchard in Cambridgeshire, the four founding members of Trump Community Orchard, we went out and we sang a little wassailing carol and we banged a couple of saucepans around the trees And a few of the neighbours came out to see what the racket was. Mm -hmm. And from there, we've been wassailing for over a decade now. And we've even had a wheelbarrow orchestra and somebody (laughs) dressed as a penguin, which may not be too authentic. But anyway, (sighs) the tradition of wassailing at the moment, I think in any community orchard is go for it. Just have a party. Yeah. But back in the 19th century, it was taken quite seriously. Um, especially down in the West Country, in, as we said, these big cider orchards. And these were growing apples specifically and only for cider. I um, In the rest of the country, you use whatever apples you could get, chuck mm. them all in together. Mm. West Country was where the best cider came from. Specific apples, very high in tannin. So if you tried to eat one, really horrible, really sour, mm. but very good then for making the cider. So, the wassailing tradition there was to go into the orchard at the dead of night, light a fire, fire your shotgun into the air, drink cider, and pour cider around the base of each apple tree, Mm -hmm. and hang in the branches a piece of toasted bread dipped in the cider. Now, if you think of our tradition of raising a toast to somebody, toasting people, with a drink, this is where it comes from, is in the bottom of your glass to sort of get out the sediment and so on in your drink, you would have a piece of toast. So that's the link. And um, this whole ceremony was um something that the Victorian folklorists, who were uh, again thinking of things that have been lost with the moving to cities, the Victorian folklorists wrote about it and said how long it had been going on said it might be pagan there isn't any evidence sadly that it's pagan it seems to have gone back to maybe the Tudor times when the wassail was a sort of a a banquet at the end of the 12 days of Christmas but it took place sort of as a as this orchard-based feast and Mm. drinking celebration of the apple trees and hopefully it gives you a a good harvest the next year. That's the excuse for holding it anyway. It's
0: the excuse for a party.
1: Absolutely. That's the English for you. You've got to do it. When I was looking into this idea of the wassail starting off as this uh, drinking uh, cheer,
2: Mm. um,
1: I found a very early complaint from somebody in, uh, from an Englishman in Paris who was embarrassed by the activities of his fellow Englishman in Paris Mm -hmm. And he said that the English are too fond of their drinking and their wassailing and they go around and they make a noise in the streets at night. So it, it, we do have a little bit of a reputation.
0: Yes, we've not shaken that one off. Binge drink Britain. No. Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> we've always been binge drink Britain.
1: But, um, so maybe the way to go is to, uh, you know, drink a good clean cider um, with a bit more respect than uh, um, hmm. other drinks and uh be mindful of all the apples that have gone into making it.
0: But you're saying that maybe wassailing doesn't even go as far back as medieval times is a revelation because you just all immediately ideas of paganism is brought because it's not a very Christian looking thing at all.
1: It's not not too Christian looking but I think it goes back to um, celebration, early celebrations of Christmas and at some point it seems to have moved out of wassailing being this sort of ritual that you do at the end of Christmas and it seems to have moved out into the orchards mm, mm. so we oh, can I trace see. it okay yeah we can trace it back to about 14th 15th century oh, really right, okay I can't get too much further back than that but I think it's you know it's definitely something that's due for a revival I mean what's not to like you know it's it's a way of sort of keeping Christmas going. As long as you hold it sort of some somewhere around twelve nights, um, you know it keeps our Christmas going a bit that longer, mm. and those very dark nights we can be out in the orchard celebrating
0: and I guess it's also just better for the community because it's not actually attached to a religion
1: that's true you know something yes, can, yeah, everyone can get invested
0: can. in that yeah. one I yeah. think so any of these really old traditions coming back are really good yes. they're much more democratic, yeah. I think in the book you mentioned quite a few important people from the point of view of the history of apples and apple-growing, pomologists.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Are there any that really stand out, maybe for their importance or maybe just because of their character?
1: I like to look at all the other people who were responsible for bringing an apple from the orchard to the plate because they're often forgotten, really. And a group that I found mainly among the pages of Henry Mayhew, who wrote about the London poor... Yes, a fantastic...
0: a yeah, isn't it? Yeah, it's yes. a
1: wonderful source. Were the apple women, well the costermongers first, mm-hmm. and among them the apple women. Now the costamongers are unique to London. Obviously, other cities, Manchester, etc., had a fruit market. It um, did. It certainly yeah. did, yes. But the costermongers were the London tribe of fruit sellers. And they went about with barrows and they sold all manner of fruit and vegetables, and they were renowned for living out on the for having no morals, for not bothering to get married, for frequently being drunk, for pawning everything that they possessed mm-hmm. so that they could get drunk, and right. then selling a bit of fruit and earning it back again. Mm. I think they've been a bit hard done by. I think to keep that lifestyle going in any way at all, you had to be quite organised about what you were buying and selling. And among them, there were the Apple women. Now, if you think of, again, the street sellers in Victorian London, you might think of the quite romanticised images that have come down to us through things like the Illustrated London News, um, beautiful country maidens selling baskets of watercress or strawberries or things like that. The apple women, not so much. They were often uh, had come over from Ireland. They were big girls. They were older women. They were quite brawny. Mm. They were not shy. And um, unlike, say, the watercress girls who were renowned for, how should we say this, offering other things for sale when they'd run out of waterpress.
0: I understand.
1: Yes. Um, I think if you'd made that request to an apple woman, you probably would have got a black eye. <laughs> um, <laughs> or certainly a clip round the ear.
2: Yeah, too um, right.
1: So these were big girls. I found a lovely little police report, or a report in the paper, mm. of an apple woman in Bristol who had been uh, arrested for causing an obstruction, probably her and her basket of apples. Mm. So because the apples were evidence, they had to count them all. She was carrying around with her 254 apples, which rough back of envelope calculation, 150 grams of apples. She's carrying maybe 40 kilos around with her. Wowzers. No. Yeah. She's a big girl. (laughs) Don't mess with them. Mm. So the apple women, um, Henry Mayhew says, were renowned for Uh, being as strong as the men, for being as outspoken as the men, um, for sitting around smoking um, and for selling apples on the street. So there's this nice tension almost between this this lovely idea of a sort of a beautiful, fresh, dew-washed apple, Mm. you know, that's coming from the country, and that's what you think that you're buying, but what you're actually buying is an apple that's been kicking around under somebody's bed probably and has been scuffed up on their apron, mm-hmm. you know, and made to look presentable and shoved into a basket. A
0: bit of spit and polish on there. A bit
1: of spit, probably literally a bit of spit and polish. <laughs> and um, you might be aware of Hassel's um, investigations into food adulteration in Victorian times. He, he wrote about foods where he'd found all manner of sort of things in it, like tea leaves weren't tea leaves, they were largely sort of sawdust and a bit of coal, Mm -hmm. you know, those kind of things. Um, And he found that apples had actually been painted in something called chromate of lead to make them a more beautiful colour.
0: You would think apples would be safe from these things. You'd think, oh, an apple is an apple. You can be sure that you've got something that's not been tampered with, but
2: no.
1: Yeah, no. (laughs) Then as now, you have to be really cautious about what it is that you're buying. Yeah, in in cities the, the food chain had already got that long that mm. you had these these things going on in it.
0: Oh, it's been fantastic speaking to you today, Joanna. Been fun. It's
1: been great. Always willing to talk about apples.
0: Have you got anything else coming up? By the way. Or um, is there any way where we can find out more information?
1: Uh, There is, I do have a website which I'm (laughs) trying to work on at the moment. Isn't everybody, Mm -hmm. but I am the proud inventor of the Pomological Personality Picker. Excellent. Patent pending. Okay. um, Which I've just moved from being um, a very uh, real world thing into a digital version. Mm. So now you may have, as a result of our conversation, this burning question if I were an Apple, what apple would I be? Now, if you answer the three questions on the Pomological Personality Picker, it will tell you. There. I see.
0: That's exciting. So,
1: applehistories.com, Pomological Personality Picker, and you will find out. You'll have to tell us the answer.
0: I'll make sure that's in the show notes for people to um, <laughs> to check out and see what they get. And yeah, th- thanks again for, for coming on. It's been great.
1: Lovely. Thank you.
0: Thank you again, Joanna. Apples and Orchards since the 18th century is out now from Bloomsbury. Now, if that discussion has fired off any thoughts and food memories or questions, please contact me because I want to know. Information about all the different ways you can contact me can be found in the show notes. Also in the show notes, there's links to Joanna's Pomological Personality Picker. There's also a link to that classic text, London Labour and London Poor by Henry Mayhew. And talking of street food and street selling, I'd just like to highlight a previous episode that looks into this topic in depth, and it's called London Street Food with Charlie Taverner from Season 5, I believe. Really good episode, so have a listen to that if you haven't already. There's also a link to a recipe on my blog for a great pudding called Apple Hat, um, there's no apple pie or crumble recipe on my blog. That needs addressing, doesn't it? I'm going to have to do something about that this year. There's also a link to a podcast I appeared on called Fear Feasts, and it was the Christmas special. It's a really interesting, quirky podcast presented by Alessandra Pino, friend of the show, and Vanessa Baker. I hope I'm pronouncing your surname correctly there, Vanessa. And the podcast looks at food and how it's represented in the horror genre. I'm actually a bit of a horror nerd, it may or may not surprise you to hear. Well, I was a guest talking about the best Christmas film ever made, Gremlins. And it was really good fun, so have a listen please. Before we go, this week's Easter eggs. Four excised chunks of chat. They're never inferior, in fact they're often prime cuts. And in the Easter eggs associated with this episode, Joanna and I discuss cooking versus dessert apples, as well as eating apples at the table. We talk about some of the people of note in apple history, including the women who, as it turns out, rather controversially painted the botanical plates for books. In the third one, we look at apples in the kitchen, crumbles, dumplings, fritters, Eve's pudding. And lastly, we talk about why food hasn't received the attention it deserves by academic historians, but also how things have started to change during this century. Remember, they can all be accessed at BritishFoodHistory.com. But anyway, it's time to go. I'll see you again soon. Thank you very much for your continued support. Cheerio.